Same time, same carriage, same faces. Every day. Until one train ride changes everything. Discover a world of espionage in The Late Train to Gypsy Hill, the debut thriller from former Home Secretary Alan Johnson. Available to buy now in paperback. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm pleased to announce that my guest this week is China Mayville, who is probably best known in this country as a novelist of science fiction and weird fantasy, but is also a considerable political theorist. And his new book is A Spectre Haunting on the Communist Manifesto. China, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, for a lot of people, they'll go... Why do we want to read about the Communist Manifesto now? What is it that made this book urgent to you? Well, I suppose, I mean, there's there's four reasons, basically. One is a mere matter of intellectual curiosity, that I think that, you know, this is, I think, uh, fairly uncontroversially the most influential political pamphlet in history and therefore should be a matter of interest to anyone of any political hue. And I would say particularly now at a time when when capitalism is in a, an extremely parlous state, those of us who find it a source of inspiration can can kind of redouble that inspiration from it. But that doesn't mean that it should be approached kind of hagiographically or dogmatically. So another reason is to sort of, in certain instances, defend it from its friends, not uncritically, and, and to, you know, allow and moot criticisms where they're warranted, as they certainly are. But finally, I also feel like, although, as I say, I make no bones about my own politics, but I, I very much wanted this to be a book that people who, don't, who aren't of the same political stamp as me can read. And one of the things that I find quite depressing is the, the poverty of most of the default arguments against the manifesto. So part of my pitch, if you like, to its many, many critics, including, I'm sure, many people listening to this podcast, is if you're going to criticise something, surely it's best to criticise it at its strongest, rather than falling back on these incredibly rote, unthinking, default criticisms, which I do as much as I can to sort of say are sort of unthinking and frankly kind of undignified. Well, could we start by, you know, as you say, we want to look at the thing in itself. Could we start by going back to paint a picture of when it was written and the political climate at the time? Because it was, it was a document of its moment, as well as arguably for all time. Very much so. And I think, you know, one of the things that's very important to say is that Marx and Engels themselves were were very frank about that. And in the years that followed, they, they repeatedly sort of said, you know, various of these formulations no longer hold, these proposals are obviously outdated, etc, etc. So there's, there's no question, I mean, it, it certainly shouldn't be treated as kind of a timeless blueprint for anything. But it was, yeah, it was published in in 1848, at the, at the behest of a very small sort of radical group as a kind of setting out a, a political position on the, the sort of eve of, a, of an extraordinary wave of revolutionary upheaval that swept Europe and indeed beyond. This is partly the sort of, you know, the kind of cunning of history that this book appearing at this time gave it this kind of tremendous sense of urgency because this kind of boiling point had been approached for some time. But very soon after its publication, certain of the, um, I wouldn't say assumptions, but analyses that are in t- contained within it about what was likely to happen in Germany and so on were, were disproven and, uh, in a rather heartbreaking way, if you were Marx and Engels, which meant that there is a kind of, 
<laughs> there is a kind of yearning, a kind of broken heartedness about the afterlife of the manifesto in, in certain respects, even though it remains in many ways a very sort of potentially excessively optimistic document. Its initial afterlife was one of disappointment. And it's sort of not quite, but it, it falls close to going out of print, doesn't it, for 20 years or so after its publication. Yeah, it's, the afterlives are, are very interesting. And I mean, I track them a little bit in the book that there are these kind of waves of, of reprints and translations and new editions and so on. And certainly initially and throughout the 1850s and so on, it was after the kind of wave of, of upheaval of the late 1840s, it sort of very much kind of went out of fashion. And then, you know, it did to a degree kind of ebb and flow with the sort of tides of political revolt and, and, and dissidence, but particularly gained a new life in 1871 after the, after the Paris Commune. And at that point, I mean, it never went out of print entirely, but you're quite right that it became a kind of, you know, it was very kind of occulted for a long time. But after 1871, you can track its resurgences with, with remarkable exactitude along kind of waves of political dissent and so on in an almost camp way at times. So, and through to this day, I should add that, you know, when there are enormous crises of, of capitalism, when there's political upheaval, when there's a lot of kind of political dissent and so on, there is very often a big spike in interest in the manifesto. You say it was, you credit it to Marx and Engels, though Marx and Engels didn't. Well, yes, it's a matter of, of controversy. Engels himself said, this is Marx's text, and I you know, can't take any credit for it. I mean, one of the arguments I make is that he's too modest. There's no question that you know, most of the sentences as written were written by Marx. But the case I make is that this is, if you like, the last layer of a palimpsest. I would say you know, the key previous layers of which had been either formulated or indeed completely written by Engels, like the communist catechism that came just before it. And it was Engels' idea to say, we need to move away from this catechistic framework towards a manifesto framework. And then there's the mere fact of the kind of intellectual and political collaboration of the two men, so that, you know, Engels was, was always a very, very living presence in Marxist politics. So for all those reasons, and I try to argue this as carefully as I can, because I, I recognise that it's... It is not necessarily a self-evident claim, but I think that this is a text in which the ghost of Engels and Engels's formulation and Engels's interests and approach are present enough that it would actually be more misleading to see him as absent than to see him as present. Now, you mentioned its origins in Engels' communist catechism, and I think that's a kind of fascinating aspect of what your book brings out. You know, it started out as a catechism, which is a kind of religious form, and they reframed it as a manifesto. And you say that its presentation as a manifesto is really important to understanding its literary and rhetorical effects. Why is that? What does it mean that it's a manifesto? Well, in a sense, as you say, I open the book with a chapter on the manifesto form, which, which I think is lacking from too many of these discussions, both in sort of, sort of general kind of history of ideas terms, to a lesser extent in the discussions of some of its proponents, but very much so in the in the discussion of its critics. In a way, I don't think I'm saying anything more sort of unusual than that texts should be read generously and their specific shape should be taken into context. But the manifesto is a very particular shape. The manifesto, the history of the manifesto, which obviously precedes the Communist Manifesto, but of which I think the manifest the Communist Manifesto is the the key seminal 
text that represents both kind of continuity and rupture of previously existing manifestos and what came afterwards. This is a very particular kind of speech act. This is a speech act that is, as you say, deeply rhetorical, deeply exhortatory. I feel like whether or not it's designed to be read aloud, it benefits enormously from being read aloud. There's a lot of attention put to its, its metaphors, its rhythms, its use of language and so on. And this, this is an act of persuasion. And it's a rhetoric that kind of makes claims that are, in many cases, oscillate between analysis, prediction, provocation, plea and entreaty. And one of the things that's frustrating about not taking that seriously is, you know, for example, a lot of its critics will read this as if it's almost like a maths textbook and will sort of say, well, you know, Marx says the workers have no country, but we see loads and loads of nationalism among working class people. Ergo, this is wrong. Now, yeah, we can have a very serious discussion about whether or not it's correct, but that is an extraordinarily miserly reading of a phrase which is intended, I would say pretty, pretty clearly, as an intervention into the fact that patriotism and nationalism were still inhering among the working class. So when they're saying, you know, the workers have no country, they're not saying, oh, look, this is the state of the world. They're saying, this is the way it should be. Please stop feeling nationalistic, you know. And again, I welcome a good faith debate about that. But the lack of taking seriously that kind of register, I think, leads to an underestimation of the of the nuance and the succulence and the power of the manifesto, whether you agree with it or not. But it also is worth saying, it's just a beautiful and amazing piece of writing. It's a delightful thing to recite to yourself. It begs for incantation. Yes. Now, it's also, which is kind of lovely, there's a lot of sort of personal stuff in there. I mean, some of the, you know, there's grand geopolitical, historical, theoretical analysis, but there's also stuff that's kind of, you know, a personal dig at Proudhon or a kind of beef yeah. with Karl Gruner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Does, does that sort of vitiate its, its seriousness or its longevity? I mean, I would say, I mean, as a matter of historical fact, it hasn't, it hasn't vitiated its longevity. I mean, you know, here it is. Um, and, and so, but I mean, I think at this point in history, if you like objectively, there are certainly points, and I try to, I try to make this argument in the book, where his arguments with Gruner, for example, seem wildly disproportionate to the target and really can only bewilder a modern reader. Now, if you're someone who spends a lot of time kind of researching this or you really look into it or so on, or at least if you're like me, you sometimes reach a, almost a place of kind of affectionate exasperation because they are so invested in these kind of incredibly splenetic debates. I mean, not, not always for bad reasons. I don't want to parody it, but, but sometimes out of proportion to what makes for a, a comprehensible read or whatever. And so there are times when I'm kind of like, oh, guys, you, you could have dialed this down a little bit, you know. But that said, they are also sometimes quite funny in some of these aspects. And at a rhetorical level, Marx and Engels are, are never better than when they're dispatching their enemies. So even if I can sort of see with my objective head on, you know, and this, by the way, is why various of these sections are often omitted in student editions or in introductory editions or whatever, because they do require a gloss now. Even if I can see that, there is something kind of, I can't help being amused by some of this stuff. And even the points at which, on a couple of points, they tip into what it's something very close to trolling. And just to say, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book, successfully or not, is precisely to not shy away from those less comprehensible bits and those more personal bits and say, 
I'm not going to pretend these are the focus of the book, but I am going to try and gloss them so that they're no longer opaque and they make sense, even if I sort of end up saying this bit probably goes on a bit longer than it could have done and so on. A line of attack in the book on what, what you describe as capitalist realism is essentially that, look, things that are presented as eternal verities are culturally determined, they're fixed, you know, that's a kind of, they're not, you know, numinous, unchanging, they can be altered. And that's a kind of core of, of Marxist materialism. Isn't it the case a bit that if we're looking at a text that describes capitalism in 1848 and we're saying, look, there are certain things here that apply eternally, that history is the history of class struggle, that you know, capital always behaves in a certain way and it's always exploitative. Aren't those the sort of eternal verities that Marxist materialism argues against? I would, I would argue not, precisely because, for Marx and Engels, part of the importance and urgency of the argument is that capitalism is not eternal, that it can be overthrown, it could be overthrown, and indeed it should and must be overthrown. And so what they are doing is discussing a kind of, you know, a, a particular set of verities for what has been, you know, a social system in place for a long time. And it's part of the nature of any such system that it presents its own verities as if they are indeed eternal. So some of these presentations are sort of descriptive of the way it feels like to feel these things under capitalism. They feel as if they are unquestioned. The term you use, capitalist realism, that I take from Mark Fisher, essentially this idea that has been a very influential idea that essentially that it's not so much a question of buying into capitalism and being a supporter of it, it's that whether or not you are a supporter of it, the idea of thinking beyond it and outside it is simply impossible. Its borders and boundaries are the borders and boundaries of the possible in his, uh, history at all. And what I would say is that the manifesto does a very interesting job of sort of reflecting and describing that reality from a standpoint that takes that lived experience very seriously while insisting that it is not an ontological truth. It feels like a sort of sociological and psychological truth, but, you know, history can and must move beyond this. Capitalism was preceded and it can be postseded isn't a word, but it should be. So when, you know, the, a very common critique of Marx, which you attack at the end is, look, this is a great idea, but it goes against human nature, crudely. Yeah. Your case would be that or Marx's case at least, would be that human nature itself is constituted, as we think of it, by this system of exploitation. Yes, I, there are some criticisms of the manifesto and of Marxism in general that I treat, I think, at some length, because these are, I think, serious objections that need to be sort of treated sort of with a lot of rigour. And then there are others that I think, to be frank, are somewhat beneath most of the people who deploy them. And the human nature one is one of them because its predicates are very, very rarely earned in the sense that, you know, one might make a case that one can say certain things about human nature and that this is the way people are. I would contest most of those, I think, because I think one of the key things about human nature is that it's enormously protean and changeable. But whether you agree with that or not, that case is almost never made. And so it generally it sort of devolves into a kind of common sense. You know, it is common sense that people, you know, capitalism can't possibly be overthrown, and it's common sense that that's because people, you know, human nature won't allow it. And so it's very rarely actually argued. It's simply stated. And one of the things that I, I try and do in the book and elsewhere is say, you know, we can certainly have a nuanced 
sort of rich analysis of human nature that we see around us now and indeed in history, including pre-capitalist history, that doesn't sort of fall into a kind of a sort of shiny, happy, reductive sense that everyone is always lovely. That That's ridiculous. And I don't think Marx says that. And I certainly don't say that. But there is a kind of negative sentimentalism to this position whereby the things that are seen as definitional to human nature are the kind of nasty, brutish and short profit maximisation and so on. That's obviously what humans are like. And then all this enormous evidence of social solidarity, of mutual aid and so on, are somehow either ignored or treated as like not as fundamentally human as the other stuff or whatever. It seems to me pretty self-evident as a matter of analysis rather than just as a given that people respond enormously differently in terms of their ethical and social behaviour to each other, depending on the context they find themselves in. And the idea that you would essentially see the kind of quotidian behaviour of someone in a, you know, deeply, not just capitalist, but these days, you know, pretty shaky capitalist state as somehow like default definition of not just human nature, but what human nature can be just seems to me to be, if if nothing else, deeply intellectually incurious. So I'm perfectly happy to have a serious argument about human nature, although I, I should caveat that I think it's nine times out of ten an unhelpful category, but, you know, we can debate that. But my point is that the vast majority of those deployments in this context are not that. They aren't serious. They're not thoughtful. They're just nostrums kicked out and I'm much more depressed by the incuriosity than I am by people disagreeing with me. I welcome a serious disagreement. I really, my heart really sinks at the kind of rote recitation of an antique canard without any thought behind it. But uh, I mean, all right, maybe a more sophisticated restatement of the human nature complaint, which, which feeds into, if you like, one of the more substantial attacks on the manifesto that you make is the... The notion, not that we're all nasty and vicious and acquisitive, but that our interests and sympathies tend to diminish with distance, if you like. That, not that we're all utterly atomised individuals, to kind of travesty that Margaret Thatcher quote, but there's individuals and there's families and there's communities. And that this is in some way fairly baked in and that that's why Marx struggles to address nationalism as a phenomenon mm-hmm. adequately in the manifesto. Is that, a, is that a fairer, less beneath us line of attack? <laughs> I mean, it's certainly put much more richly and nuancedly. I mean, I think one of the difficulties of, of this debate at all, including when it's addressed at a more serious level, is that largely we're talking here about things that are unfalsifiable because you can't have a control group. So the best we can do, and it's not nothing, but it's not everything, is to do a kind of really rigorous questioning thought experiment and so on. I would say, I simply don't see any evidence that it is a given. I mean, I think the the behaviour and the kind of sense of kind of affective bonds you're describing are largely true around us in the world. But what I don't see is any evidence that that need always be the case. Kind of the opposite, I feel that, you know, you talk about closeness, and that's interesting, because closeness is obviously not a geographic thing, it's a social thing. And sometimes people can feel great closeness and kind of in-group closeness for people who are thousands of miles away, but who are defined as, you know, whatever it might be. Well, indeed. And, you know, 
they're Brits like us, they're white like us or whatever. And those are not given categories. And the idea that like that these are political categories that are very often deployed quite deliberately and cynically and that sometimes I think are sort of thrown up by the systems we have. And I simply don't see, partly because they are changeable, they change with time even within the system we have. So it seems to me that there's no strong argument that they are automatically always given. The case you you make about nationalism is interesting, and I would I would absolutely agree that, as I think most people who are inspired by and sympathetic towards Marx and Marxism would, that the formulations about nationalism in the in the manifesto, even though I think they are far less straightforwardly crude than they are often depicted as, and I, I try and make this case, they are definitely one-sided and they are I think partial and I think that there's no question that among the various things that would have crestfallen Marx and Engels about capitalism after the manifesto is the resilience of nationalism I think that's quite true but I do try to say drawing quite a lot on the arguments of someone like Erica Benner who's a very brilliant philosopher of this which is that, again, bracketing whether or not you agree with them for the moment, there is actually embedded a much more rich theory of the kind of intersections of politics and nation and class that you can kind of extract from Marx and Engels' writing in general and that you can even see as a kind of semi-visible strand within the manifesto. I don't want to sound like I'm engaged in left apologetic theology here. I mean, there are shortcomings, no questions about it. But I think that, although I I do make criticisms of their formulations about nationalism, I think that most of the criticisms that are out there are, again, sort of intellectually miserly and too one-sided. And I certainly don't think that they operate as a kind of buttress for the kind of human nature argument that you are ventriloquizing. Yeah. You mentioned a, you know, a left theology. And you know another of the lines of attack that you address in the book is that you know, Marxism is a religion. And, you know, some fuel is given to that line of attack by the fact, you know, it starts out as a catechism. You're surprisingly sympathetic to that to that view. I thought it was going to get the, get the full dismissal, but actually... <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, this is partly, I think, a function of biography, of autobiography, which is that I've become increasingly interested in theology over over the last few years which I don't think is particularly uncommon on the left, I should say, there's a theological moment. But I've always felt like, I, mean, I remember back in the days of the, you know, do you remember the New Atheists? Remember when that was a thing? Um, <laughs> sure. And one of the things that I remember at the time thinking, you know, when you talk about someone like Christopher Hitchens, who, whatever my many disagreements with Christopher Hitchens, and they are multitudinous, not a stupid man, like a really intelligent, smart man. And the sheer stupidity and crudity of his attacks on religion, the sheer, again, to use a word that comes up a lot for me, incuriosity of his attacks on religion, just made my jaw drop. Like, essentially, to put it slightly crudely, there is a kind of notion of religion which is prevalent, actually, across some aspects of the left, some aspects of the right, liberalism, which is that it is an irrational category error. And I think my position, for many years, I should say, since before my increasing interest in theology, as both a metaphor and as a a field in its own right, has been that whatever else it partakes of, because of course there are, you know, irrational acts committed in the name of religion and so on, whatever else it partakes of, the idea that that's what religion boils down to is totally unconvincing and is also, I think, a kind of 
a very incurious and flattened notion of what the human is. And I'm really interested in those kind of affective, non-rational but not irrational elements of humanity. And I'm always, you know, there are so many examples to me of, of things that can't be that are deeply human and deeply important and that have political ramifications, but that aren't reducible to a kind of rational, irrational split. And religion, it seems to me, whether one is a person of faith or not, is very often one way of experiencing those and thinking about those and and so on. And so the chapter that talks about the attack on Marxism and as a religion, partly it's a matter of intellectual honesty, which is that I think the, the charge that this is a kind of millennial, eschatological, apocalyptic tract is true. It would be disingenuous to deny it. You know, I don't think that it boils down, therefore, to a kind of, you know, nothing but a dream work. I think it has more analytical teeth than that. But I think that tenor is absolutely true. And then I would further say that I don't think that means that it's irrational. And I would further say that one of the things that that does is it embeds it with a a deeply, to me, deeply moving sense of the kind of complexity of the human being yearning to live in something other than the shit it is living in. That is an impulse that has religious iterations, it has secular iterations, and it has a lot of iterations that hover somewhere between the two. So there's this anecdote I repeat in the book about working class people in the you know early 20th century asking to be buried with a copy of the manifesto and not to let the priest, when they know they're dying, not to let the priest put a Bible in the coffin, but insisting on a copy of the manifesto. I find that so incredibly moving, and it seems to me that simply looking at this thing, which is this kind of committed fidelity to a book that is saying, you have no power, and that this is not right, and it need not be like this, and the sense that that your living conditions give you that you are disposable are an abomination, and the, the sense of this as making it one of somebody's dying wish to be buried with this book, which abjures God's I find so moving. And the idea of saying, well, this just shows how irrational these people are, seems to me, I'm sorry to repeat the the term, but so incurious and with such an impoverished notion of, of how politics work, how humans work and how political interventions work, that it struck me as both more honest and more interesting to say, well, let's take seriously this accusation that this is a a religious text and see what that might mean. Because even the word faith, as I try and gesture at in the book, to have faith in something, and that's a polysemic word, like, you know, a committed fidelity to something, like to have a committed fidelity to the necessity of revolution is to have faith in it, which is in some ways the same as having the faith that God exists, but in some ways quite distinct. And and that kind of haziness seems to me to be a very rich seam of human experience and politics. Now, I think probably, I think I can generalise to say that probably most of our readers are at best communist sceptic, we could say. I would imagine so. So allow me to kind of put what I suppose would be for many of them the sort of central charge against Marx, which is however subtle his analysis of economic relations or or at least power relations and societal structures in the book, when his prescriptions have been tried in every major instance in the world, something that's supposed to make people, as you know, he would have expressed, you know, freer and was supposed to reduce the size of the state or, or abolish the state altogether, has had exactly the opposite effect and often at the cost of enormous human misery. Why is that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very legitimate line of critique, and I try to take it seriously in the book. And I would say in passing, as I've tried to stress, like, I welcome a good faith serious argument about this. But what I would say to the, you know, many communism sceptical listeners is, you know, if that's going to be your line of attack, great, let's have a serious discussion about it. But you may have to up your game compared to, not your, you know, one's game, given the level at which that claim has been made, the level at which that attack has been made historically has been very, very unthinking. For one thing, for example, a lot of people who level it seem to have no notion that on the left, including the Marxist left, there has for, you know, decades been, for over a century, been a really rich and important argument precisely about the nature of these regimes that are being thrown up, supposedly, you know, following Marx and Engels's proposals. And there have again, for decades, been deeply critical takes on the shape that these regimes are taking on the basis of Marxist categories, including the categories of the manifesto, about the idea of the control of the things that we need at a material and a cultural level being enacted at by a kind of radical grassroots democracy. This is clearly not the nature of these regimes. Now, it's not the focus of the book, so I I freely admit that I I can't and haven't gone into this in deep detail. But what I have tried to do is say, you know, I'm not just waving my hands by fiat and saying those don't count. I'm saying they're not they're not never been tried argument, which is also a bit thin. I mean, I think if you're going to make that argument, you have to sort of flesh it out a little bit. And this is one of the things I've tried to do. And I've tried to say, you know, there is a strong argument that, you know, not just that these regimes are not legitimate representatives, but that they are not legitimate representatives because of the particular shapes that they took in the 20th century and a few of them in the 21st century because of having to subordinate their dynamics to a kind of competitive accumulation of an overwhelmingly dominant capitalist economy and world and so on means that some of these kind of, you know, democratic experiments and so on simply haven't been able to to be made and that ultimately the kind of sclerosis embodied in in an embattled centralized economy however one wants to define it means that it gets out competed in purely kind of accumulative terms which is an extremely important proviso by more overtly capitalist forces and so on i i try to argue that in the book so is there the sense in which when the, the major instances we've seen have essentially followed the example of russia which in your analysis if i'm not misrepresenting it kind of went wrong when it said socialism in one country I think I think that the international simple, nature is vital. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean I think that's right and I think and again to repeat myself one can agree or disagree with that but it is right there in the manifesto. The argument is, you know, this is international or it is nothing. And in the early years of the Russian revolution the revolutionaries were very clear like what we're waiting for is the German revolution and then we're waiting for the other revolutions and we're holding on until then. And then when they don't happen they say in what I think is a kind of a council of despair, you know, well, then we can have socialism in one country. And I think that's a catastrophic error. So and then I think that shape, and it would be remiss not to point out that however critical one is of those countries, you know, it doesn't surprise me that many people put their hopes in them, given the support they gave to, you know, provisional and hedged and so on, but to sort of certain anti-colonial movements and so on. But I make no bones about the fact that I'm a critic of these countries and these regimes, for the following reasons. I would also add just one thing, which is I think it's completely legitimate and indeed very important to start talking about, you know, the death tolls of of Stalin and the, you know, the kind of brutalization of 
grassroots democracy under you know Maoist China and so on and you know talk about you know Pol Pot etc I have no problem with talking about any of this but you know what's source for the goose dot 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 I mean when one starts to tally up the death toll of capitalism in terms of you know unnecessary deaths due to poverty lack of vaccination malnutrition and this is before you even get into kind of millions dead with artificially created famines in India in the Second World War or the death tolls of war, which I think, you know, wars waged by capitalist states are inextricably part of the capitalist system, which I could make an argument for and so on. It seems to me a bit rich when people start tallying up the Stalinist death toll as if everything is going brilliantly in terms of human rights and quality of life, let alone allowing people to live under capitalism. And I always say I would be much less critical of capitalism if capitalism, A, you know, lived up to its own promises and B, was able to perpetuate itself without quite so much mass misery and death. But one of the things you say that Marx did get wrong about capitalism, and he admitted he got wrong about capitalism, is this sort of Ricardoian idea that it necessarily would lead to a kind of incremental, progressive, irreversible immiseration of the workers. Yeah. And yeah. it hasn't done that. In order to ensure its own survival, as you know, you write very well about the protean nature and the adaptability of capitalism, it's actually, in lots of cases, lifted people out of poverty. I mean, in, in lots of cases, yes. But the idea of lifted out of poverty is a complicated one because it kind of, it's complicatedly ahistorical in the sense that it has created certain sort of tranches of, of workers who enjoy certain material benefits. And I don't poo-poo that at all, but it's also created sort of, you know, terrible kind of marginalised grey markets and criminality. This is not to, to duck the, the point. It's perfectly true that, you know, the... the prediction that capitalism would just inexorably push people into a kind of increasing pauperization and immiseration is is demonstrably untrue. One of the arguments that I make is that, in fact, you can see the seeds of a much more nuanced question of a kind of relative immiseration and the kind of waves of, you know, relative amelioration and followed by immiseration also within the manifesto, which Mark, partly dealing with issues of race and gender, it should be said, which Marx and Engels kind of embed but don't go into and don't seem to notice in their own argument. I mean, in terms of the defence of capitalism, it feels like I have no issue with saying, yes, it has created this extraordinary productive economy, which has in many cases allowed, you know, material goods and so on that would have been unthinkable a 100 years ago. The problem with that as a kind of ticket to freedom is that, A, that comes along with enormous kind of widespread misery and cultural impoverishment and so on. But B, we know that those are always ready to be dispensed with when when the going gets tough. So you see in the States, for example, you know, the kind of real wages have been going down for years and years and years and, and, and going down in this country in recent years and so on. And that process of so the idea that there will be a kind of steady state amelioration and, you know, the poorest will you know, they'll still be poor compared to the rich, but they'll get relatively better off and better off and better off. I mean, there's no question at all that that's wrong. We can simply see that even with capitalism's own statistics and so on. And I think that particularly during a time of crisis, during a time of crisis of profitability and crisis of power for people who are in charge of capitalist politics and economics, 
that's the stuff that's dispensable. And so as a defense of it, I think it's a it's a very weak dispense because it's basically saying, you know, things haven't been going too badly, let's cross your fingers. You know, the moment the shit hits the fan, we know who we know who suffers. And that will always be the case because as even most of its advocates would allow, I think, the driving force of capitalism is not the meeting of human need. It is not the amelioration of poverty. It is not the improvement of the living standards of working class people. It is profit. And while there is enough profit, you may also be able to do those other things. But the moment profit is in trouble, capitalism quite self-evidently will prioritise profit at the expense of these other things, just like it always has. It says it will. Why would we be surprised at that? Yeah, though, though to try a source of the goose tactic, <laughs> you know, capitalism may never have properly been tried either. I mean, you know, one of the points that, you know, the, the sort of neoliberal Milt Friedman school of capitalism, which I think is the sort that you particularly deprecate that tends towards monopolism. You know, Adam Smith also wrote the theory of moral sentiments and it's not all, you know, leave it all to the market and it'll sort it out. And a lot of people who are not necessarily raving communists from, you know, Francis Fukuyama to Joe Stiglitz would say, look, this neoliberalism is a distortion of what we call a sort of responsible capitalism and that there is a social contract embedded in the heart of capitalism. It isn't a sort of individualistic scramble to crush the poor into the ground. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, you know, it's never been tried argument. Some people do put that. There's a there's a vein of kind of anarcho-capitalist libertarians who do essentially put this exact argument. And while I think they're completely wrong, I, I'm intrigued by the kind of rigour of their predicates. And, you know, I, I find that quite an interesting way of approaching the issue. Now, I disagree with them largely on kind of historical and philosophical grounds, which is that I think, unlike, in my opinion, and for the reasons that I state, questions of communism, when we talk about capitalism, we are talking about a system that, you know, has existed for hundreds of years, and I'm interested in actually existing capitalism. And I don't deprecate the kind of sincerity of people like Stiglitz or whatever. And I also don't deprecate the idea that a lot of people who are committed to capitalism would much rather it was less shitty. You know, no one doubts that. My analysis, and it follows very much in the analysis of the manifesto and even more so the books that came afterwards and so on, again, I hope not uncritically, but very much inspired by those positions, is that this is, and you know, Marx himself and Engels talk about people with much the same position when they're criticising, you know, bourgeois socialism and so on in the manifesto. The problem for me is that I think what you see in the nature of what we have loosely called neoliberalism and financialization and so on is precisely simply the acceleration of exactly the tendencies on which capitalism is built and that define capitalism, which is profit maximization and an increasingly short-term profit maximization. Now, I think what's interesting is that you have different wings, if you like, of of kind of advocates and partisans for capitalism. And this has always been the case. The idea, I mean, and the, the manifesto is very clear that this is not like, you know, a cabal of people who all agree on things. They talk about them as warring brothers. So, and I think that at the moment, one of the reasons that I'm very fearful politically is precisely because there is a battle, if you like, for the future of capitalism between what Mike Davis has called the lumpen bourgeoisie, for whom, you know, a certain type of very, very short term accumulation is the, the key thing. And those people who I suppose you could probably you could maybe describe as kind of 
capitalist rational managers in in heavy scare quotes who are concerned i think quite rightly about the medium and long-term replication of capitalism partly in the context of a heating world and partly in the context of you know collapsing economies and falling profit rates now i don't think it's a historical contingency or accident that the short-termists have the upper hand i think that's because of the dynamics of capitalism and because ultimately to argue against the sort of short-termist profiteering is to cleave against the dominant wing of the kind of, of, of the warring brothers, if you like. So there are various different shapes capitalism can take. And I don't say it's totally impossible that different regimes of accumulation can be thrown up. They've been thrown up before. You know, neoliberalism was itself a response to a previous regime of accumulation before around about 1973. And at the moment, one of the reasons this is such a dangerous time is I think we are precisely in a moment when, you know, the accumulation regime is in deep, deep trouble and there is an argument about how best to sustain it or if indeed sustaining it is the aim. One thing I'm clear about and that I take from Marx and Engels and that I argue is while I don't say the outcome will be the same for working class and poor people come what may, there are, there are better and worse bad outcomes they will absolutely be at the bottom of that outcome, whatever it is. And I'm increasingly fearful that they will be punished by the worst possible of these outcomes because there has never been a better time to be a fascist in my living memory. Yeah. Now, again, to return to this question of, yeah, if we concede the analysis, is it not right that the remedy that's proposed is a colossal leap of faith? I mean, you yourself say... And Marx says, look, I don't know what it's going to look like after the revolution because it'll be historically specific. It will, you know, the, the new communist regime will create its own regime. And you say yourself, you know, you, the nature of a rupture is you can't see what's on the other side. Does that trouble you? It doesn't. And I take the point, And I think you're absolutely right. And I don't mean it doesn't trouble me in the sense of what are you worried? What are you worried about? Like, it's, you're right. It is in that sense of faith, a leap of faith. And I take very seriously the idea that ruptural politics precisely is about, you know, respecting the unknowability of what is on the other side. I think, for me, the reason it doesn't trouble me is because everything in my experience, and again, I can't prove this, this isn't falsifiable, this isn't the way these things work, but everything in my experience says, look, to suggest that we need to move beyond capitalism, you don't need to think that whatever happens after capitalism will be perfect. You don't. You don't need to think that there won't be terrible mistakes made. All you need to think is, A, that it is possible, it is conceivable that we could move beyond a capitalist regime of accumulation. And two, that there is a reasonable chance that it will be less shitty than this. And I would add three, the chance of it being this bad or worse is vanishingly low. Now, maybe we disagree about the state of the world, but I think, you know, the statistics and, and stories about, you know, how bad things are and how disempowered most people are in this globe and the scale of things like, not just inequality as an abstract problem, but inequality that means mass death at the other end, are such that I find the idea that the wager, and that's my preferred analogy, is less the leaf of faith than the wager. The wager that we might just get something less shit than this is overwhelmingly worth making. How influential is Marx on 
if you like, the mainstream of the modern left. I mean, I'm interested in how you look at, for example, you know, a politics that's now certainly in the States and increasingly over here, sort of progressive politics is very rooted in questions of identity. And it's an idealistic politics, you could probably say, using that in its philosophical sense. Do you think the left has left Marx? I mean, one of the things about being middle-aged is, and I'm not not saying anything a thousand generations haven't seen said before, but is this sense of the return, the return of certain debates. So a a lot of the kind of debates around things like identity and, you know, and so on, I mean, obviously, they take on a very new cast in the sense that, you know, in the context of social media and in the context of the Internet and in the context, I would say, of fairly severe capitalist crisis and so on. But these sorts of debates and these sorts of politics are not new. I think I would proceed cautiously, which is that I think, for one, actually, I think there's been a great deal of increased interest in Marx and Marxism and Marxian approaches to politics in, I think, the last 10 years or so on the left. Still, of course, a very minority current, but in my experience, greater than I I think in, certainly in my adult lifetime, let's put it that way. I think, of course, there are wings of political people who identify on the left who take a very sort of anti-Marxist line or who have a kind of politics that that doesn't cleave very smoothly with the Marx-influenced politics. But I think I think this can be overstated, and I think part of the reason it can be overstated is because the moral panic about, quote, wokeness, unquote, largely on the right, but also on some, some elements of the left, which I think is overwhelmingly a preposterous, you know, scare-tactic bogeyman that, you know, is, is just... There are some interesting discussions to be had, but they are not being had, let's put it that way. So I'm actually, on this particular instance, although I'm politically fairly anxious at a kind of grand scale, on, on the level of the sort of the discussions that are going on on the left, I'm, I'm kind of cautiously hopeful in the sense that I think some of these elements are, are very enriching to Marxism. There's no question that particularly the early Marx and Engels, like the Manifesto, don't treat some of these these issues with enough nuance or enough over succulence and so on. So it's great to be enriched by those traditions. And conversely, people who come out of a very different political but radical tradition, a meaningful minority are sort of showing an interest in kind of socialism in general and a kind you know, which which on some level or other is Marxian influenced. So I would say I would say actually I am cautiously hopeful, although I'm not going to overstate the strength of the left, and actually, if anything, more so than I was maybe three or four years ago. But I mean, this is we're talking here about minority currents. I don't want to deny that, but they are minority currents that feel more vibrant and interesting and and exciting and intellectually exciting than I think they have for a while. And I think, for example, anyone who's interested in ideas from whatever perspective, the fact, again, whatever one thinks of it and whether or not one agrees, the fact of the kind of explosion of the democratic socialists of America in the US, the numbers of this once utterly marginal organisation that is now, you know, a kind of still small on on a national level, but, you know, incomparably larger than it was organising groups of young leftists who are intervening in local elections, who are having arguments about trade union politics, who are engaging with questions about the Democrats, about, you know, racial politics, Black Lives Matter, and so on and so forth. The fact of the explosion of that membership and those kind of discussions is completely fascinating. And 
simply out of intellectual curiosity and a sense of like, you know, some some notorious figures associated with the right are always sort of saying, you know, where are the big ideas happening? Like, well, you may not agree with them, but there's a lot of ideas going on in these currents of the left. And of course, from my perspective, that's very exciting. Can I ask finally just quite a personal question? As I said in my introduction, you know, you're really well known as a writer of weird fantasy. Are they kind of completely different hats for you or does your politics inflect your fiction? They feel like different hats in the sense that they tap very different parts of my writing soul. But I think, I mean, my answer to this is always basically like I'm interested in a certain set of things and the things I'm interested in will always to some degree or other find their way into the writing, whether the writing is fiction or non-fiction and whatever the writing is in inverted commas about. So I certainly am well aware that there are kind of political aspects and so on in the fiction because I'm interested in them. It would be very odd if if they weren't there, you know. But that is obviously a long way from saying that, you know, the fiction is written as a political intervention. I think that's very... And I'm aware you didn't say that, but there, there is a model whereby any sense of interaction kind of bleeds into that. And I... For the sake both of the fiction and the politics, I don't think that's a very useful model. But I'm very, very happy saying, you know, I like very much writing fiction and I'm a person who has political interests, among other interests. And so you will certainly be able to see political, you know, aspects of my political thought in the fiction. Great. So uh, this thing about the relation between the two poles, the two uh, pulls, I should say, is much more something that other people are intrigued by how it works than I am. It's, it's never been an issue for me, if that makes sense. Charlie Mayville, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July.